Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Enjoy this 2020 best of episode of Black Arm of the Law. Today we are joined by a retired FBI agent. Please welcome Mr. George Graves. June of 2015, you recall the Mother Emanuel AME church shooting in Charleston. I think it was June, I want to say June 17, 2015. And the reason why that date is etched in my mind is it was a Wednesday night, and I was uh, I was teaching Bible study at my church. Wow. I get home, um, put my kids to bed, and my cell phone goes off, and it's my boss, my supervisor, who's in Charleston. Uh, I have again, I'm in a small office down in Beaufort County. Charleston's two hours away from me, but I right. report to that I report to that office in in Charleston. And he, I could tell by he normally doesn't call me that late, and I could tell when he called me that in his, by his voice that something terrible had happened. And so he said, "George, it was a shooting at, at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, and um, and I, 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 I may need you to come up to work." And I said, "Okay." You, I said, "Right away, you knew it wasn't nobody black did that." Well, I didn't know what to think at the time. <laughs> I mean, I was just shocked. I was just like, "Man, who would go into a church and start shooting?" And um, and then I was just thinking about I, I just left my church, you know, it could have happened to right. my church. Right. And so um, I asked him if he needed me to report right away. And he said, no, I've got I've got a, our other agents out on the scene. Um, and um, I need you to probably come up around 6 a.m. to relieve them because we're going to start working shifts. The shooter is still at large. We don't know who he is. And. Um, Right now, there's just a lot of chaos going on. And I said, okay, so I'll, I'll, I'll report at 6 a.m. So, you know, I went to bed, and I got a few hours of sleep, and then I had to hop in a car at 4 a.m. to get to Charleston by 6. I get to Charleston. I report to the command post that was set up. Uh, we're trying to identify who the shooter was. We still hadn't known at that time, and we're covering leads everywhere. Right. And so right around about 10, 30, 11 o'clock, we finally got a lead that, there was a, a civilian, a woman, I believe, who spotted Dylan Roof's car. And by the way, by that time, there was a video from the church's camera that right. we were able to pull and identify the young man as Dylan Roof. So we know who he was. Um, a woman spotted him in Shelby, North Carolina. And he was in custody. Shelby police arrested him without incident in a traffic stop. So my boss came to me and said, George, I want you to go to Shelby to interview him and to bring him back. Now, Carl, you got to understand something. In the Columbia Division at the time, uh, I was only one of two black FBI agents in the entire state. Right. Right. I, I, I'm, I'm sure. I'm, I'm sure of that. South Carolina, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> so, so I'm shocked that he's asking me now. 
Now, Dylan Roof right. is just... What was, going through your, what was going through your mind at the time, man? Nine black people, and I, I asked, and I never questioned my supervisor, but I said, Brian, <laughs> are you sure that you think I'm the, the right guy to send out there to go talk to him? Because, you know, typically whenever we want to try to uh, get a statement from someone and a confession, you want to send the person or individual who you think has the best opportunity to get a statement or confession. Right. And, and so the fact that, you know, this is a hate crime. So you were asking, so wait a second, you trying to tell me you was only asking because, because of the confession or was there a part of you like, girl, I'm not the right man to send over here. Like you really said to me, like, come on. Well, there had to be a part of you like, you sure you want to send me? Yeah, I, I I I never second guessed my boss, but and I never second guessed my ability. But I I was thinking in terms of uh, of the having the right outcome, you gotcha, know. And, gotcha. and if I'm not the right guy, I don't want to go. I would rather someone else go who has a better opportunity of getting a confession. Not that I couldn't. It's just that under the circumstances, I felt is this the right strategy? Um, but my boss turned to me and said, George, you're one of my most senior guys. I want you to go. You're the right guy. So I get on a plane with uh, another um, state office, police officer assigned to our task force and two Charleston police department, police officers. The four of us fly from Charleston to Shelby, North Carolina uh, to go interview Dylan Roof and then escort him back to Charleston to turn him over to the custody of the, the uh, sheriff's department or, or the mar federal marshals. Uh, we land in this little airport in Shelby, North Carolina. I mean, it, it kind of reminded me of, if you remember the old sitcom Wings, um, you know, just this little podunk airport. And so we're waiting there uh, for the Shelby police officers to bring Dylan Roof uh, to transfer him over to our custody. And while I'm waiting there, I get a call from my office, and they advise me that um, two of my other colleague, FBI colleagues from Columbia, while we were delayed flying into Shelby, they drove from Columbia, South Carolina, to Shelby, North Carolina, and they actually arrived before I did, and they were given the, the green light to interview uh, Dylan Roof. And so they had hmm. already um, talked to Mr. Roof. My understanding was, you know, they – and. Obviously, his his interview is public record. It's all over YouTube. You can pull it up. Um, and so at that point, I was instructed that I did not have to interview him because he was already being interviewed. And my job and the other three officers with me were just to simply escort Mr. Roof, take him into transferred custody to our, our custody and bring him back on the plane to Charleston. Wow. Wow. So I'm, so I'm sitting there. And it was weird because as we're waiting, you know, all of a sudden, I guess word of mouth must have come around that they were bringing Roof to the airport because all of a sudden I just saw this this wave of media um, surrounding this little airport. You know, there were helicopters in the in this air and uh, press all over the place. So now, do you think do you think your boss? I mean, you know, in hindsight, do you think he sent you? You know, because he knew that was going to happen. Politically? No, uh, I don't believe that at all. I believe he sent me with, with, with the clear directive of interviewing John Roof. Um, and, and to be honest with you, I, I never questioned his motivation of why he sent me. Um, 
maybe you know some people have speculated he sent you because you you wanted Roof to see a black face in law enforcement and take him into custody. Right. I, I don't know that it'd be true. I never had a conversation with my supervisor over his motivation for sending me. Um, his wow. only comment to me was that you're one of my senior guys, and I, I know that you're capable of, of doing the interview, and I'm sending you. Okay. All right. So the media shows up, paparazzi, is a frenzy going on, and then what? So they, uh, Shelby police arrived with, with Dylan Roof. They, um, uh, I asked them to bring him to the rear of the airport because it was all the media was in front. And I did worry at that point in time. I mean, I didn't know, you know, for his safety, my safety, you know, sometimes when people do really crazy things, there's other people out there who might want to exact vengeance on him, and shoot at him and might be shooting at me in the process. So I wanted to protect him and protect myself and the other officers with me. So I, I asked the Shelby police to bring him around to the rear of the airport, which they did. And then um, they brought him out. Um, I went out to the tarmac to meet them. Um, I took took Mr. Roof and we walked him onto the plane. Uh, but what was interesting is that that when we got him onto the plane, it, it's a it was a five seater King Air small plane, and the other officers with me sat uh, a, kind of away from me, and there was two seats that faced each other, and so I sat Mr. Roof directly across from me on the plane. And it was so small in there, and my knees were literally touching his knees. Oh, no. Uh-uh. Hell no. So, Hell no. So I'm, I'm looking no. at him, Mm-mm. and he's looking at me, or trying not to look at me, actually. Uh, he's kind of looking out the window of the plane. And so— um, but, but, what was his, but what was his face like at the time? Like, what was he—you he, know, did it look like he was remorseful? Did he—you know, how did he look? I mean, if you were to, if you were to give— your, you know, uh, opinion, or should I say, hesitation as to what what was happening in that moment? What, you know, from your POV was, what did it seem like? You know, you know, he looked very tired. Um, my understanding was that and I found this out later that he was up all night driving around after the shooting. Um, he clearly did not want to engage me. Um, he would not really look at me directly in the face. Uh, he looked out the window. He I'd have been burning tight. a hole through his skull with my eyeballs. Like I would have burned into his soul with my eyeballs. Like I, I can't imagine. I, 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 what, what were you thinking at the time? Tell the truth. You wanted to open up the plane door once you got up, and you wanted to, you wanted to just show him what it looked like from the other side. Tell the truth. You 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 want? No, you know, I got to tell you, Carl. I was. Um, uh, I had a, a, a mixed emotions, wave of emotions, as I'm sure anybody would. Obviously, this is. Uh, I mean, because you, you said yourself, you were just at. I mean, you're a God fearing man. You were at church praying, but I mean, I mean, the, the the nature of this particular crime is just is ridiculous. I mean, you you know, here's a. I mean, from what we understand, right? Here's a here's a guy who sat and prayed with them first. They welcomed him you know, into the fold. And I mean, God, you know, I can't imagine watching that footage. You know, I can't even imagine what that would look like. And I don't want to, um, you know, prayers for all the families involved as we're discussing this. But I'm just saying, please explain the emotions that we're going through. Because I, I can only imagine me, me, even, you know, and I know when you're on the job and you, you know, you have a different mindset and you kind of just put yourself in, but some things go deeper than that. 
you know, as as a you know, as not only just as a black man, as a human being. But in this case, definitely as, as, as a person of color, as a black man, please, please explain to me what your emotions were at that time. Yeah, I had a range of emotions, Carl. Honestly, I, um, I, I looked at him. He looked like he was just a young kid, you know, and, and then I looked down at his hands and because, uh, you know, I don't know why I was fixated at his hands because maybe it's because they train us that your hands can hurt you. Um, and I re- and I just the thought went over my my mind that these were the hands that just pulled the trigger and killed nine innocent people in a church who looked just like me. Uh, and so I went from you know being angry, but then reminding myself I'm a professional. Um, I have to treat uh, treat him as I would anyone else in my care and custody. And my 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 goal and my orders were to get him safely from A to B. Um, Having said that, you know, I'm still human. And so, um, I, I initially felt like, how could someone have failed this young man? Like, who failed you in your life mm. that you would get you to this point that you would go into a church, that you would pray with people, and then you would, without provocation, that you would just ruthlessly murder them? And so I almost felt sorry for him. For the fact mm. that someone along the line failed him um, to get him to this point. And no sooner did I feel sorry for him, that I got angry for feeling sorry for him. Exactly. I'm glad, I'm glad you said that. Okay. All right. Okay. We're on the same page. But, but just so you understand the range of emotion that I'm yes. experiencing. Yes, yes, Um, And so th- uh, at that point, I said, look, I have a job to do. I'm going to do my job. I'm going to get him safely from this point uh, to the next. And I, and I said, I'm going to treat him like I would anyone else that I've uh, been in my care and custody who have, and I've conducted numerous arrests over the course of my career. And typically I would ask someone, you know, um, do you take prescription medication? Because I want to know that if you need medication for something that I need to be aware of your health condition. So I asked right. him, I said, right. Mr. Roof, are you, do you need to take any kind of prescription medication? He, 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 he looked over at me. He said, no. Uh, I said, have you eaten anything in the last, you know, couple of hours? He said, well, they gave me some food when they first arrested me. I said, okay. So wait, well, we- yeah. Is that, is that the whole story I heard about them taking him to Burger King or something? Well, I, I, I don't, I didn't know anything about that. I, I, I Did you hear about that? I mean, I subsequently you? heard that they, they, they got him food from Burger King. Now, I don't know that they took him there or they picked up the food and then gave it to him. So I don't know. They, they were actually kind enough to that. stop and grab him something to eat. That, that's what I understand. Yeah, that's what I understand. So, uh, um, so I said, I don't have any food on the plane for you. Uh, but I will make sure that I tell the sheriff deputies when we get to Charleston that it's been several hours since you ate. Um, and then I said, well, we have water. It was a very hot day. I remember it was very hot in that plane. Um, and I said, well, I have some water and I can give you some water. Um, and that's what I typically offer anyone who's in my custody because uh, it's a humane thing to do. And so I reached into that cooler and I grabbed him water and, and I um, – he couldn't hold the water really because he, his hands were, he was puffed, um, uh, around his waist with what we call a belly band and he had leg irons on. So 
I actually held, I un, unscrewed the water and I, and I held the water up to him and I, and I gave him the water. I fed uh, it to him. Uh, you are, you, 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 are, you, you something. You're a better man than me. You are no, better. I don't, I don't, I don't see it that way. I just felt. So you, were, you, you were on some, what would Jesus do? That was, that was kind of your thought process. Yeah, you know what? To be honest with you, Carl, I, I, I will say that was kind of a God moment. I mean, uh, I, I really felt like God, I, at first I was saying, well, I'll just hand it to him. But I, then I realized I don't think he could really hold it. So I really felt like, the, you know, and then a lot of people might call this, uh, I don't know. I felt the Holy Spirit telling me you need to, you need to serve him. Um, because he, you might be the only Jesus he sees. Enjoy this 2020 best of episode of Black Arm of the Law. Please welcome to the show, Audrey McNeil. So you were SWAT at this time, right? And you're, you were a, a hostage or a crisis negotiator. Is that correct? Yes. What, what case stands out to you the most that you had to deal with within that, that position? Uh, this case uh, was back in February of 93. And uh, some people may recall it where there was an incident. This gentleman had crashed his vehicle on a 14th Street bridge. And uh, the second district responded to it. But they responded and they declared a barricade because he wouldn't come out the car and he declared that he had a bomb. So once the barricade was uh, declared, then we came out the team. And uh, it had to have been the coldest day in February to be up on a 14th Street bridge. And as a little aside, I laugh about this. My sister had given me a horrible, hideous sweater for Christmas. And I said, well, I was pulling stations. I'm like, let me just wear this ugly sweater. I'm so glad I had this sweater on. But uh, the uh, the barricade left in nine hours. I get on the scene. The captain says, okay, uh, McDonald, it's your turn. And so I talked to this guy nine hours um, didn't know if he had a bomb, so we tried to do a throw phone. Throw phone, for those who don't know, is um, you've probably seen on movies where it's the phone where the um, the perpetrator picks up and talks directly to the negotiator. We didn't have enough cord to get close enough to him, but far away in case he had a, a bomb. So then we uh, we had to let's say we, my coach and the person who was driving the APC. We had to get in the APC, which was like being in the refrigerator, uh, for nine hours. And then also I had to have on a bomb suit, which is 80 pounds. And, uh, it was, it was long. It was tough. Uh, and the goal was to try to find what, what is the thing that is going to allow this person to, to, uh, change their mind about this whole detonating this bomb. Um, and then I had the, we had the psychologist on the scene because I, he was a Nigerian, um, a naturalized Nigerian citizen. And I say that because I needed to connect with him culturally. You know, some places are not accepting of women in an authority position. But oftentimes when you're in a crisis, you don't care what the person looks like. It's somebody who's trying to help you. But nevertheless, we were, I was able to uh, calm him down get him to come out of the, uh, his car. It was a Mercedes. Just so hot. I don't know what it popped in my mind. And uh, admit he did not have a, a, a bomb. The whole situation was behind a domestic, domestic. Um, I think is what they were going through, a divorce or separation of that nature. So it was very controversial at the end. 
because the um, the guys use a net over him and it drawed it. And so people said that brought memories of slavery. You know, the, the visions of what slavery must have been like. You put somebody in the net. They put a net over his head because still, you can't really necessarily believe somebody if they say they don't have it. So they, you know, pull the net, uh, pull the drawstring to contain him and, and keep them away from him. From any, from going anywhere, just to keep them right there. Uh, it, it was, it was funny too on the other side. You know, police officers always had dark humor if you didn't, if you didn't know. Um, the guy kept asking, where's Audrey? <laughs> where's Audrey? Where's Audrey? So the joke was, why do you tell us your boyfriend was upset with you like that? And they just thought that was the funniest thing. <laughs> but uh, that, that was intense. That, that was a very intense, you know, sitting there with a bomb suit on. Uh, you're close, you have to get close to this individual who's claiming they have this, a bomb. And, um, you know, you just don't know. And you know the only way that you can resolve this is through negotiation. So I felt the heat on me. But, you know, you put that aside and you put your mind on the task at hand and do your best with that because you know a lot of lives depend on it because they stop the trains, the planes, the cars, everything. For nine hours because this individual was in such distress. Right. Now, so so in your position, I mean, obviously you deal with situations like this. Um, you know, some some are more uh, detrimental, right? Uh, or most would consider, you know, emotional or dark or heavy, right? Yeah, there, there was one. I didn't tell you about that one. I, that, that one ended, you know, that was a... That ended positively. Right, right. But I want to hear about one that didn't end positively because I would like to know how, you know, you deal with that and how you're able to create some sort of balance. Sure. Well, this was Super Bowl Sunday, 97. And uh, the the 7th District declared a barricade. Um, They had gotten a call for a shooting in the apartment. And so when the officers arrived, they saw what looked, what appeared to be uh, blood and brain matter coming from the door. Oh. And that, and they knocked on the door, didn't get a response. And so that's when they opted to call ERT. And the individual was an 18, the perpetrator was an 18-year-old boy named Timmy. I, I'll always remember that. So... I get the ticket to, to be a negotiator. And this one went on for 19 hours. And so they tried to introduce other negotiators, but it wasn't going well. So it was back with me being the primary negotiator with the coach. It was, it was, it was devastating because this young guy was, was high off of um, PCP. Um, the snipers were up. The snipers at one time had to go the green light because they could see this young man holding a baby with a, a um, it looked like a forty-five cal in the baby's mouth. Baby mm. was like six months old, and you know, trying to talk to him. You know, you're trying to reason with somebody who's high as a kite. During the course of that barricade, there was another gunshot, and right before that gun, this, this was that gunshot was heard. They the uh, snipers were saying, "Hey, we see he's walking around again with the baby with a gun in the mouth, was in her mouth. It was a girl." And um, we heard the gunshot, and all radio transmissions stopped. And and you could just—it was like a like time stood still because you knew he murdered that child, that innocent baby. 
but yet I got to get back on and is everything okay? And he never would admit he did anything to the child. We all knew it. Um, as the, as the barricade progressed, it, I wasn't necessarily getting anything out of him. The decision was made to bring in what they call a third party intermediary. Uh, and oftentimes that's a family member. So apparently his family was from North Carolina. Someone had told them, or I don't know how they knew it was him or whatever, but told the family they they were had enough time to drive up to D.C., come to the scene from North Carolina. And so we coach, you know, we had a downside because there were times when he wasn't responding to coach his mother on what to say to appeal to him based on, you know, the way negotiations were going or were not, you know, going successfully. And so we put her on a, uh, on a bullhorn to talk to him. Nothing changed with that at all. So now we realize that we got a situation really where, uh, we don't have a, uh, this is not going to be, this is not going to have a good outcome. Now I've got to switch my tactics. I'm not going to peacefully resolve this with negotiations. I'm going to have to now speak to him, keep him distracted because we got to do a dynamic entry. And because we knew our had something was already, someone had been injured anyway. And so I'm still talking to him and uh, it goes quiet. But while the team is at the door, the door opens. So they tied off the door, plus SWAT technique, tied off the door. The door, there's another individual in there who manages to open the door slightly, and the team sees her. She's injured, too. And they come in, and she tells them that he went to lie down. He, When he see, hears the team coming in, he jumps up with the empty AK-47, and he's, he's uh, shot and killed. Now... Why was that devastating? One, um, you know, with the baby and going down, the negotiator's job also was to diagram and photograph the the, um, the scene. So for future reference, if we have to go in the building like that, we already know what it looks like. That was very difficult because it was a trail of blood. But let me back up. Someone had told the mother of one of, there were two women in there and a baby. Someone had told the mother that her daughter was in his apartment. And we had intel that that person, that her daughter was was murdered. And someone pointed her to me. And uh, I think the most difficult thing in my life was I knew that um, her daughter was deceased. And I just talking to this mother who's extremely distraught. And she asked me, uh, you know, my, my daughter's there. Is she okay? Is she okay? And, and it took every fiber of my being to look that lady in the eye and tell her, I don't know, but they're asking anyone whose family to go up the street to this church. I often have thought about that. When you retire, it seems like all those things kind of hit you out of nowhere sometimes. That was the worst barricade. This young man had killed his that his girlfriend that morning. The, the barricade was declared at 8.39 or 8.37. And he had killed her. He dragged her body all through the apartment. There was just trails of blood everywhere. He shot her in the head. Her girlfriend was there. She held on all that time. She had been shot in the chest. 
Mm. And she sat at the, the door like that, terrified, and it was her baby who was killed. Mm. It was it, to go in that apartment was like a uh, it's like a slaughterhouse. I've never forgotten that. I, it took me a long time because when I was talking to him, um, he kept telling me he wanted to be like the birds. He wanted to be like the birds. And, you know, I'm like, okay, I kind of get it, but I don't because I'm trying to keep him talking because, like I said, I had to distract him. And so I, there were two things that hit me. Months later, I'm sitting in the bathtub, and and I hear him say to me, I want to be like the birds, which is pretty obvious, but it wasn't quite obvious to me. And I'm like, oh, okay, he wanted to be free. He wanted to be, you know, done with things. And then the other thing was uh, it took me a long time to – now, when you see, like, really bloody uh, roadkill, it took me a minute to kind of, like, not feel, like, this weird feeling because, you know, thinking about the baby. It took me a minute, and uh, I don't have those, you know, it doesn't bother me roadkill, but that barricade did not end well, and, and um, I'm like, wow, that was so many years ago, and I have an 18-year-old daughter now, and I just... You know, I think about, I, I do think about that mother and it was how I must have, how I would have felt, you know, had learned something like that. That was one of the worst barricades we had. It really was. Enjoy this 2020 best of episode of Black Arm of the Law. Today's guest is the one and only Dr. DeLacy Davis. A lot of people, and this is, you know, on, on previous shows, we've had this conversation where a lot of, a lot of cops a lot of law enforcement uh, policing the communities that they don't come from and they don't have any right. idea. They don't have any connection to them. They don't have uh, any roots or any any type of, you know, there's no foundation. There's no basis. There's nothing. And so there's a there's a disconnect mm-hmm. between the, the community that you're policing. And so um, is that one of the reasons why you felt it important to uh, – implement this type of program? Absolutely. So one of the things that I thought was going to happen when I took the job in the department was that I was going to have to live in the city. So I immediately bought a house in the neighborhood where I walked the beat. I also, at the time, that was the year that the uh, Mazda Miata came out, 1990. And so (laughs) I would park my convertible on my beat with the top down. And they would throw garbage in my car every day. And so folks would say, well, why do you leave the top down? I said, because I wanted the community to understand that I was committed to getting to know the community and trusting the very same community that I was asking to trust me. And so I knew that as less garbage was thrown in my car, I was earning the respect of the residents in that community. And that's what I did. So, for example, I ran the domestic violence response team in that city that initially was being run by a white lieutenant, white sergeant, and they couldn't get anybody, any volunteers to run the team. They gave me the assignment in this, as a sergeant, and within a couple of months' time, we were running it around the clock, 18 team members, including one man. We were servicing in one year 900 victims of domestic violence in a year because I was connected to the community. I was running wow. the block associations, the tenant associations, and empowering the people. I'm also, I was a hostage negotiator, firearms instructor, crisis intervention. So, for example, on my day off, we had a young lady that was hit by a truck and dragged under the wheel, 12 years old, and the mother wouldn't let the body go. I get the call on a Saturday on my day off. I live eight minutes from the community. I drive there, and I sit on the curb with the mother and console her 
until she's ready to let her child go. Because I got nothing but time, number one, and I'm in the community. So she allowed me to come and console her. And so once her pastor showed up, I was able to convince him to walk her away from the baby. Then we lifted the truck and pulled the baby from under there and put her on a gurney. So that it has some, there's a lot to be said about being connected to the community. Right. So what, what do you think is the key, though, to getting uh, officers to have the same sentiment, to have the same investment or, or you know, level of care that you have for the community? So I, I think there are a couple of things. One is, you know, there's an axiom that we use in leadership training that what gets rewarded gets done. So if you get rewarded to see no evil, hear no evil, and speak no evil, then that's what you do. In order to get to the level of care, the attitude of the officer on the street is a reflection of the leadership at the top. The top has to have an attitude of gratitude, an attitude of humility and connection to the community. Um, the, very often, especially in law enforcement, it's a political job at the top. And so the politics often takes over from real police work. You know, I, I tell people all the time, why don't we just police black and brown and poor communities the way you want your mama's community policed? See, folks want their mama. It's easy when we think of how it happens in suburban white communities, affluent communities, and your mama's community. You wouldn't care what your mama did. Even if she was dead wrong, you wanted to be treated with dignity and respect. But yet my mama becomes the B word, the N word, and all the other words. And so at the end of the day, law enforcement has to take a deep, hard look at itself and its practices. We know that it emerges in the South out of slave patrols and in the North, um, it's social control. But at the end of the day, law enforcement is a lot more controlled and disciplined than it has been in our community, as evidenced by January 6th, because they only fired one bullet in an environment that was absolutely necessary to use deadly force and everybody restrained themselves. Yet in our community, when you're black, walking while black, talking while black, eating, sleeping, colleging, driving or shopping while black, we get gunned down unarmed. And we always the answer always was I was in fear of losing my life. No, you don't give a damn about our lives, which is why you have no problem taking it. So why do you think that is? Why do you think uh, January 6th happened the way it did? Uh, I think because um, I, I'll, I'll explain it, the, the discipline this way. Um, I think it was Paducah, Kansas or Kentucky, wherever Paducah is, I can't remember. But um, there, were, there was some years ago, uh, two white kids, about 11 and 13, pulled the fire alarm at a school, and then they were gunning down their classmates as they exited the building. And the police officer that chased them down in the woods, he said as he was chasing them, every time he raised his gun to open fire, he couldn't shoot at them because they reminded him of his own children. That's compassion. And that's empathy. I think that what happens is that, unfortunately, in this country, and especially in law enforcement, and not just white officers, but criminals have a black and brown face very frequently. And so people are not as inclined to be compassionate and to be um, disciplined when it comes to working with our community. I think that historically and traditionally, it has always been in law enforcement about controlling the movements of black and brown bodies, period. And not much has changed. You know, Dr. Francis Cress Wells, he talked about the nine people area activities that are dominated by racism and white supremacy. And says, if you really want change and fairness and we have to get in these institutions and reform them, change them or tear them down and rebuild them so that they're fair. And their economics, education, entertainment, um, labor, law, politics, religion, sex and war. And so 
this is just one of those areas where it's always been controlling black and brown people. And so for, I think for some of my black colleagues, um, they're in denial. Some of them will not face the fact. I mean, yeah, I got cousins that are criminals and relatives who are criminals and they should be punished. But they should not be punished at the hands of a judge, jury and executioner with a badge and a gun on the street. And therein lies the difference. Well, so so what, what's interesting to me and what I would what I would hope is that, you know, the problem that I see and I'm pretty sure a lot of, you know, a lot of others see as well is that there's no accountability. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, policing themselves or in general, not having any type of outside agency to conduct this type of policing. So what does police reform in this in this sense look like to, for you? I knew you would ask that question. I had a feeling. So I had my answer sitting in front of me. Right. Good. So at the federal Good. level, we're talking about trauma informed policing as a standard. Um, consent mm-hmm. decrees being reinstated, which was which was um, stopped under Trump. Pattern and practice investigations of police departments. We were successful with one in New Haven, Connecticut, with um, the killing of Malik Jones. Um, address qualified immunity so that police officers, it was never intended for police officers to be protected in the way that they're being protected with qualified immunity. We need whistleblower protection for good police officers. If you can, if you can protect Samity Bull Gravano, who killed 19 people and avowed killed 19 people, but you gave him a, a pass on it to give up his boss, John Gotti, then why aren't we protecting good police officers that want to expose the bad ones? We need to ban chokeholds in any stress positions, even though um, what was done to George Floyd was absolutely heinous and unconscionable. It wasn't a chokehold. It was a knee to the neck. And so we get caught up looking the wrong way, talking about banning chokeholds, when in reality that was a knee to a neck and a stress position. So we need to ban stress positions in addition to chokeholds, we need to divest and reallocate police budgets, make elected officials, ex- make accepting union dollars, campaign dollars from unions for elected officials toxic. We need to punish those elected officials who accept FOP and PBA dollars and then turn around and allow them to kill us in the street. And then finally, federally, we need accountability for law enforcement agencies via economic incentives to shift their policy. That's just the federal stuff. And what would those incentives be? So, for example, they're trying it now. So so I'll give you an example. Uniform Crime Report, which is the federal reporting arm that the FBI manages, where each police department is expected to report um, their crimes, um, their hate crimes, and a whole list of crimes that go there. There are roughly 18,000 police departments, nearly a million police officers, and only about 20% of all the police departments participate. So if, in fact, you refuse to give your numbers, then we'll refuse to give you federal dollars. Simple. You won't get federal money. We won't give you surplus money. We also won't let you militarize your department by using um, surplus military equipment in your community. Tanks and helicopters and things that people just don't need, right? Drones. So that's what it would look like in terms of incentivize or de-incentivizing those folks that don't want to follow the line. Additionally, we need special prosecutors to invest use of force cases and police shootings and nothing else but that so that they're not having this unholy alliance that Johnny Cochran used to talk about where the prosecutor needs police officers to prosecute cases and prosecutors get promoted in advance based upon their conviction rate. And so if I need a police officer to get a conviction, then why in the world do you think that they would help me get convictions if I'm prosecuting cops? So we need a special prosecutor who deals with that and that alone. We have to change the deadly force standard from reasonable to necessary. 
currently it's a reasonable standard and California is attempting to change the law so that it says necessary standard and then license police officers as a requirement for working in a state so that if you kill somebody in this state and lose your license, you can't go to another job. It just doesn't work that way. Me as a professional, when I'm training and lecturing, I have to get professional liability insurance. And if, in fact, I can't carry professional liability insurance, I can't go and train in certain places. Why? Because they want to make sure that that you're covered under the insurance policy. It's simple. So why aren't we doing that? I understand because the lobby for law enforcement is much more powerful than the damn outcry and the political will of those who claim to represent our communities. And then we have to examine the police academies and what they're teaching and the curriculum, but also evaluate the academy dismissals by race, ethnicity, gender, and to review the reasons like firearms and physical training that weeds out black and brown people, especially the women, because I think women bring a very different experience. We already know from the research and the data that women shoot less than men on the police force. Yet, we're not jumping at the bit to bring women onto the police force. That's just some of it. Black Arm of the Law is hosted by Carl Payne. Produced by Ken Johnson, Bart Phillips, and Carl Payne. Assistant producer, Lauren Turner. Consulting producers, FBI Special Agent Retired Don Taylor and FBI Special Agent Retired George Graves. Edited by Rick Chill. Theme music by Jeff Red, courtesy of Soul Real Records. Executive producers, Ken Johnson and Bart Phillips. Find Black Arm of the Law on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Black Arm of the Law is a mean old lion media production. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.